If you haven't already, please turn your Bibles to Ezra 9. If you haven't heard the term before, the type of preaching that we use here at Christ Presbyterian Church is called expository preaching. And expository preaching attempts to present and apply the truths of Scripture as they are found in the Bible, meaning as things come up, the preacher's task is to illustrate, explain, and apply those things to the life of the congregation. Expository preaching binds a preacher and the people to the only source of spiritual change. Because hearts are transformed when the people are confronted with the word of God. Expository preachers are committed to saying what God says. And thus, a preacher's mission and calling is to explain to God's people what the Bible means for them. Now, my prayer and John's prayer and the officer's prayer and the staff's prayer is that God will use preaching to produce knowledge of God's will that changes us, that will produce spiritual fruit. Our goal is not merely to produce information of what we should know about God, but to have a transformed life that will change our destinies and the futures of generations to come. Expository preaching evaluates elevates preaching to such a high priority that it should be intimidating for anyone behind this pulpit. For we know it is not the gifts of the preacher that change people's lives or change people's hearts. It is the power of God's Spirit teaching the Word and applying it to our lives. And we should marvel at this grace because God has chosen to use puny people like me to change the world forever. Paul himself boasts in his weakness of preaching and says that it is only God's Spirit who can shatter the hardness of men's hearts. There's no technique, there's no philosophical construct that can revive the soul. It is God and God alone. And I say that this morning because in the next two chapters of Ezra, we're going to be dealt a hard text, and I can't just skip over it. Because then we'd be skipping over what God has intended for his people to hear. But what's hard this morning is that the text actually doesn't tell us to do anything. It's not explicit. It doesn't say, do this and this will happen. But as we often see in the Old Testament, it shows us what we are to do. And it's not going to be easy. Because as I said earlier, we're dealing with sin. And when we deal with our sin, we lose something. 
and losing is hard. So my family consists of me, a Presbyterian minister, my beautiful wife, Jessica, a school teacher, and our three children. And then my brother, who's an Episcopal priest, his wife, who's a speech pathologist, and his three children. And then I have a younger sister who's a school teacher and her husband, who is a counselor. And my mother, who, for lack of better terms, is a Baptist minister. And my father, who is a framer-turned-contractor. This isn't the beginning of a joke. This is, this is my family. And this is proof that at every holiday meal we sit around the table, at any second, our conversation could go south really quick. As you can imagine, our view of religion in the church, it's different. As you can imagine, we're scattered the entire spectrum of our politics. There's one thing that we agree on. The Razorbacks are the best team in college football. Now, I want you to think about your families. How are your families made up together? Parents, siblings, and children. Some of you have lost parents and siblings and even children. Some of you have been divorced. Some of you have added children from other families. Families are complicated. Families are hard to deal with. Some of you have family members you haven't spoken to in a really long time. And it didn't happen by accident. And it's because families are messy. It's no wonder that often biblical authors describe the church as families. Although we are not actually related by blood, we are related by marriage. We are married to our groom, Jesus himself. It's not through a government piece of paper, but it's through faith that we become the bride of of Christ. We are called brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. When I go to Presbyterian meetings, I address those there as fathers and brothers. And we, like families within the church, well, our conversations can go south pretty quickly. And this is where we find ourselves this morning in Ezra 9. And the conversation, as I said earlier, I honestly, I wish I could just skip over. Because it's like the family laundry has been brought and put on the table in all of its messiness. And we don't have an industrial washing machine just to throw it in. We have to wash it by hands. Our hands. And we have to clean other people's laundries. Because this morning, this text deals with deep-seated sin. It's sin that has been overlooked. 
It's sin that has been brushed away. And yet it's also sin that is right in front of their face and they have not confronted it. Does it sound like a family dinner? And what we find in this text are two confessions and one promise. And what we see here in the first confession is the people of God have come to Ezra. Ezra, a man that God has chosen to lead his people and gathered his people and brought them back into the promised land. They brought gold and silver and temple vessels. They brought Levites and priests so that they could be the holy people of God in the promised land and fulfill their destiny as God's people to be a light unto the nations. And God is working in their midst. And Ezra is doing exactly what Ezra has been called to do. But did you hear what happens? Did you see what happened when Blake read this text? Did you feel what was happening to the people? As Ezra has become to teach them the word of God, the word of God has revealed to them their sin. And we should feel the contrition that they felt. We should feel the sorrow and the remorse and the guilt that they felt. Because from the beginning to the end of this passage, we are reading God's word, and God's word is doing exactly what it should do when we study God's word, when we do God's word, and we teach God's word. It makes us look in the mirror and reveals our sin. And this is what the people do. In the first two verses, it says, After these things have been done, the officials appeared to me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with the abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has been mixed itself and the peoples with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been the foremost. We read Deuteronomy 7, and we began in verse 6. But if you read all of Deuteronomy 7, this is a direct contradiction to what God said in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7.1, this is what the Lord says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, and you enter the land and take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction, and you shall not make a covenant with them nor marry them. Now in this text, in Deuteronomy 7, 
we are introduced to a problem once we get to Ezra 9. But unfortunately, that's not the problem that you're thinking of right now. My, my guess is the problem that you're thinking with right now is how can God say something like this? How on earth can the Bible claim that this God is a loving God, forgiving and faithful and just, a God who called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations? How can this God tell Israel to devote a people to destruction? And as we see in Ezra 9.12, God says to them, or Ezra says, never seek their peace or prosperity. How are we supposed to respond to this? Because we must respond. Because the world is watching and listening. And to some of us, this might be unforgivable for God to say. And I, but I want to address this quickly, not because this is something small, but in Ezra 9, this isn't really what the text is about. But because we're expository preachers, I must deal with what the text says. But here's one thing that we can confirm. God called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God does not hate nations because nations are filled with people that he created in his image. We read in Ezra 6.21 that the peoples in the lands actually joined in to the worship of the people who were coming out of exile. We read throughout Old Testament history, sojourners, Moabites, Canaanites, they took part in the worship of Yahweh. As we see in the New Testament, Greeks and Gentiles are called to worship the one true God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is what we can affirm. Yet how do we get past this? How do we deal with texts like Deuteronomy 7 and Ezra 9? And here's my short answer. We read a lot. We spend lots of time in prayer. We spend lots of time reading ancient history. We spend a lot of time dealing with the context of where we get these scriptures, understanding the topics and the situations that cannot be summarized in five minutes. It will take years. But we must remember God's intentions. His intentions are good, for he is just. And what he desires from the people in Deuteronomy 7 is that they fall on their knees in worship of him. And what he also desires is for his people to remain pure. For it says in Deuteronomy 7.4, he's afraid that his people will run to the sons and the daughters of these other people and therefore break the first commandments of having no other God before him. And why is this so important? Well, the answer is in verses 6 through 7. God has called his people to be holy. 
to be set apart as a nation for himself, to show justice, to show mercy, so that the nations might be drawn in to worship him. They were supposed to be separated so they might bless them. This prohibition existed because God knew the hearts of his people. Imagine that. God knew his people would stray if they were left to their own laws and to their own thoughts and to their own works. These people had the land that God had promised Abraham. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, there were rivalry wars to prove whose God was the strongest, whose God was the one true God. But yet we see as Israel goes into the land, those who follow after God are welcomed, like Rahab was. Like the many Egyptians who left with Israel because God had defeated their gods. These people did not have to fight Israel. But they chose to because they did not want to submit to Yahweh. They should have submitted. And Paul tells us that one day every knee will bow before our God. And they would have tried to destroy Israel. They would have to try to destroy God's purposes for his people. This is why they could not make a covenant with them. These wars had nothing to do with an ethnic cleansing. For God is the God of every tribe, tongue, and nation. These wars were fought to preserve God's people so that God could use them. You might not think that's enough. And it probably isn't. But my hope is, let us devote ourselves to studying God's words diligently, thoroughly, and even exhaustively if we need to. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand the deep things of an eternal and infinite God because we are finite beings. And we resent what God does sometimes. And guess what? That's okay. Because God is good and he is faithful. But as I said earlier, this is not what this text is about. What we see in Ezra 9 is that God has told them to do something in Deuteronomy 7. And what we find in Ezra 9 is they have disobeyed God's direct command. Now let me tell you what this text also isn't saying. This text is not saying interracial marriage is bad. Read the book of Ruth. It talks about interracial marriage. What this text repeatedly is telling us is exactly what Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians 6. 
do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with the darkness? God's people are not to marry other people who do not believe in God, for they will lead them astray. And not in big things, but in small things. Through temptations, through loosening our views of what God has said. Because remember, Deuteronomy 6, teach your children what I have commanded you. And Deuteronomy 7, do not marry the people of the Lamb, comes right after Deuteronomy 5, where he gives the Ten Commandments to his people and calls them to be holy. This is what the nations will do to you. You will follow after their gods and you will lead me. God is telling his people, you are weak. You are not able to do this. Girls, do not date a boy if he does not believe in Jesus. It is not your job to lead him to Jesus over a steak dinner at Outback Steakhouse. If you want to lead him to Jesus, get some friends and read the Bible together. Read the word, teach the word, do the word, and pray for them. For you have called to be holy. And as we see the people in Ezra's day in chapter 4, our response to them should be, we have nothing to do with you. Because we worship God and God alone. What God is asking the people to do is, do you love me? If you love me, you will do what the law demands. And this is what happens. The people have now read the law. They've been in exile. They've been brought back. Ezra has been placed over them, and he has taught them the law. They have learned the law, and then they're like, uh-oh, we ain't doing it. And so they respond properly. They go to Ezra and say, we have sinned. Please help us. In verse 4, we see they were trembling at the words of God because of their faithlessness. And they realized that their sin had to be dealt with. And they repented. They turned from what they had been doing, from the gods they had been serving, and they came running to Ezra. They responded to the gospel, that there's good news, that there is forgiveness. They didn't run away. They ran to Ezra. And notice... They're already part of God's people. These weren't people outside the church realizing they have sinned. These are people inside the church realizing they have sinned. And so here's my question for you. This, well, here's my first question for you this morning. 
When was the last time you read God's law and repented of your sin? You know, we, we come and do it. It's in our bulletin. We come and do it every single Lord's Day. But what my fear is, is that sometimes when we read this confession of sin, is we realize, oh yeah, I've done something wrong without being able to name what we did wrong. But what we see Israel doing here is they're asking for help. When was the last time you asked for help with your sin? When was the last time you confessed your sin to someone else? About two months ago, I had someone ask me to go to lunch. And when I went with him, he said, I have sinned, and I don't know what to do. And you know what I did with him? We looked at the Word of God. We read what God demanded him to do. And we prayed and we asked for God's forgiveness together. James tells us, confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Whether it's to your spouse, whether it's to a friend, get this. Whether you repent of your sin and confess your sin to your own children, we are called to be a people that confess our sins, no matter how small, no matter how great. This is how we respond to God's love. This is how we show we love God. We repent of our sin. What sin or sins do you need to confess? And whom do you need to confess them to? The Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask the Spirit to open your eyes to your sin to the sins and the abominations of the world that has taught us it's not that big of a deal. This little thing, don't worry about it. No one will know. But think about the sins that they're confessing. They've married the wrong people. This is a very public sin. If you have sin that you need to confess, please come to me. Please come to John. Please come to any of our officers. We want to lift the yoke of slavery from you and place upon you the yoke of Christ. For you have been forgiven of your sins. So we see that the people have confessed their sins. And then we come in verse 5 through 15, 5 through the rest of the chapter, we see Ezra's confession. So the people have come to Ezra. They have come to the one whom God has appointed as their priest who has skilled the law of Moses, and they have confessed their sin. And we read his response in verse 3. 
As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled the hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. This is the appropriate reaction to sin. This is how we should respond to our own sin in utter remorse. But think about it. Read what just happened. The people came to Ezra and confessed their sin, and he responded to their sin, not to his own sin. He responded to their sin with them. Ezra mourns at the knowledge that the people of God have breached covenant faithfulness. Because Ezra has experienced this before. Ezra knows what this kind of sin leads to. It leads to exile. Where they have just been. Just think if the people responded with repentance and confession to Jeremiah when he came to them. They never would have been kicked out of the land. But Ezra has experienced what sin and covenant breach has caused. But then they're right back at it. Forty years later, they're living their old selves. And so what does Ezra do? He goes before God and he recounts the sins of old. That's what he does in verses 6 and 7. He talks about Israel's past sins. If you don't think your past sins has any bearing on your life today, you are mistaken. How you have been sinned against matters. Whom you have sinned against matters. Even if it was 15 or 40 or 60 years ago. Sin matters. And then he mourns. And then he confesses. In verses 8, in verses 10, in verses 12, it says, But now, but now, and therefore, drawing his eyes away from the past to the present, he says, We have sinned. But now a brief moment of favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. God has shown us mercy. He has sought his estranged wife. And then Ezra continues. And now, O oh God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded us by your servants, the prophets. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, O oh God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us a remnant as this, 
Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant and no escape? God has warned them. They should have known the law, but they didn't. They should have known what God wanted them to do, but they didn't do it. They should have known what their actions would evoke, and they didn't care. And yet, after all of this, God did not treat them as what their sins deserved because he gave them his mercy and grace. What Ezra is doing is Ezra is showing that he is a faithful priest. Because what does he do? He identifies with the people. He did not sin, but he identifies with the sin of the people as if they were his own. Ezra is telling them at the, at the very end of this verse, verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left with a remnant that has escaped to this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And then he stops. There's nothing else. There's as if there is no hope. We must separate ourselves from the world, or this will happen to us. Our hope will be taken away. But just as Ezra is a faithful high priest and identifying with the sins of the people, we have Jesus, who identified with us, but he didn't just say, we have sinned. He says, your sin has fallen upon me. And if you believe in me, you are forgiven. You are cleansed by my blood. You have been baptized from death into life because I am a faithful high priest for you. Jesus was the right man for the job. For our sins have been dealt with, and we have been justified by the eternal blood of the Lamb of God. Your sin has no power over you because of Jesus. So what we've seen, we've seen a confession of the people, we've seen a confession of Ezra, and I said lastly we must see that there are promises of God. And these are harder to see than the, con- the pr- confessions, right? Verses 1 and 2, the people confess. Verses 3 to 15, Ezra confesses. But littered throughout this passage are the promises of God. And both Ezra and the people refer to it. In verse 2, the people say, So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples. And then later, Ezra at least three times refers to the remnant of God's people. 
this remnant, these people who have been cast off, that God brought back to himself are proof that our God is faithful and judgment is not the last word in our lives. How do you know if you are saved from your sin? Have you repented and believed upon Christ? This is what he's done. The people have been cast out. They have been brought back from exile. How do they know that God has been faithful? They know because they're still there. They're confessing their sins. They're turning away and repenting of their sins because God has been gracious to them and he has extended mercy to them. He has promised unconditionally that they will be a holy people. This passage is about race. It's about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Why God forbids them to intermarry is that he wants the seed of the woman, who is Christ, his Redeemer, not to be lost. For his promise of salvation rests in the race of Jesus Christ. The people who are his own, the people of his treasured possession, the people that he loved, even though they were unlovable. And he promised to crush the head of the serpent. When he could have acted justly, he did so while also being merciful by crushing Christ in our stead. No one can stand before a holy God, yet we stand in front of him because of Jesus. If you're constantly in sin, if you're constantly mad, if you're constantly bombarded with idolatry or infidelity or lying or hatred or envy or lust or pornography, if sin has taken over you, it has no mastery over you if you are in Christ because God is faithful to his people. God is preserving us because he is faithful and just. But to come to Jesus, you must lose something. And it usually starts at our pride because we have to confess that we've done something wrong. When we read the law, it should reveal to us we need a Savior and it should respond and it should elicit a response of confession and repentance. Your dirty laundry needs to be cleaned. And it's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And guess what? You can't do this by yourself. I'm not very old. I haven't been doing this a very long time. What I can promise you, you cannot do this by yourself. You cannot hide your sin long enough to where it just goes away.
but there's hope. If you have confessed your sins before Christ, you are forgiven. Look at me and hear that. If you have confessed your sins to Christ, he is faithful to forgive. You have been cleansed. You have been made clean. Not by your own work, but by the work of Christ. Sin has lost its sting. Amen. Father, be with us. Father, change us by your word. Father, when all seems bleak and hopeless, give us hope and joy, for we know that Jesus is coming. Lord, come quickly. Amen.